0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. It's estimated that up to 10% of the U.S. population has restless leg syndrome, most middle-aged or older. Since it tends to occur in the latter part of the day, it commonly interferes with an individual's ability to sleep and is one of several known sleep disorders. Unfortunately, there is no cure. However, there are now a variety of treatment options available. The topic for today's podcast is restless leg syndrome, and our guest is sleep specialist and neurologist, Dr. Michael Silber from the Mayo Clinic. We'll discuss the symptoms and pathophysiology of restless leg syndrome, other medical conditions often confused with it, as well as the various treatment options. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Mike, welcome, and thanks for joining me today.
1: It's a pleasure, thank you for inviting me.
0: Mike, I'm gonna start by asking you to give us a definition of restless leg syndrome.
1: Restless leg syndrome is defined clinically. It is defined in terms of the symptoms that the patient tell us. So the one fundamental symptom is that of this dreadful urge to move the legs. It may or may not be accompanied with more specific discomforts in the legs. And then there are three other characteristics which qualify this urge to move. First, it must occur while the patient is at rest, sitting or lying. Second, there is either complete resolution of the urge or at least improvement with movements such as walking. And third, it's worse towards the end of the day. And that's a true circadian rhythmicity to it. It's not just because we sit down and lie down more towards the end of the day. So if a patient has all those characteristics, the chances are they have restless legs.
0: Is it always involving the lower extremities? Does it ever involve the arms?
1: It can involve other parts of the body, but that is less likely to occur. The arms can be involved, occasionally the trunk, but if so, it must definitely fulfill those criteria, worse at rest,
0: relieved by movement. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what symptoms might a patient describe that we might think about restless leg syndrome?
1: Well, clearly the symptoms I've discussed in the definition, but there are a few things to just think about. One of the questions sometimes asked is, can it be painful? And the answer is yes, a minority of patients describe it as an actual pain, but many describe it as a discomfort using a wide variety of terms. The sort of classic ones are ants crawling over my skin, insects under the skin, but it can really be anything from itch through to burning, through to tingling, sometimes bizarrely described as something deep inside my bones, but always with that urge to move. If pain is very prominent. One just has to think of a differential diagnosis, fibromyalgia, arthritis, cramps that maybe we'll come back to later, or even the positive symptoms of peripheral neuropathy, paresthesias in the feet. But the differences here are the urge to move, worse at rest, relieved by movement. The other issue about the symptoms is symmetry. It may be asymmetric. It may alternate between legs. Some patients will say, well, you know, for hours it's in my right leg, then it switches to my left leg, and occasionally it's more prominent in one leg than the other. The other little thing that can go wrong in in diagnosis is you ask the patient, is it relieved when you walk? And they say, no, not at all. But they're misunderstanding us. What they think you mean is that, does it go away permanently if they walk? And you say, no, no, I don't mean that. I mean, while you're walking. Oh, wow, I'm walking, doctor. Of course it goes away. But as soon as I lie down again, it comes back. So one just has to be careful of that. And some patients late in the disorder, sometimes that relief by movement becomes less evident. But if you go back and say 10 years ago was relief by movement, always was.
0: And I've thought back to my career, and I've had quite a few patients who've been diagnosed with restless leg syndrome, and there's quite a variety of symptoms they uh, present, but what they all have in common is when they get up and walk, whatever those symptoms are, they go away. Mm -hmm. Well, what do we know about the cause of restless leg syndrome? Well, as you said, restless
1: legs is very common, maybe as frequent as 10% occasional, tiny amounts of it, but certainly about 2% of the population have what we call chronic persistent restless legs at least twice a week, causing moderate to severe distress. We know there's a strong genetic component. 50% of patients will report a family history, and they may well be higher than that because a lot of people don't know what their relatives complained of. Thank <laughs> The genetics is still unclear. It seems in many families be autosomal dominant. I have several three or four generation families, and there have been identifications with certain chromosomes, certain genes, but it's obviously complex, multifactorial, and the exact genetics is still not fully elucidated. There is a definite association with iron deficiency, so it's so important when one's taking that history to ask about all possible causes for iron deficiency in pre menopausal women menorrhager frequent blood donation can be a factor in postmenopausal patients, GI blood loss is important. In my career, I've picked up one or two carcinomas of the colon in this way. So one just has to be sensitive to that. Past bariatric surgery, for instance, which can prevent iron absorption, sometimes proton pump inhibitors can do that. And occasionally, you have people with very unusual diets without much iron. So one has to ask about risk factors for iron deficiency. Other medical conditions, well, we've known for a long time that chronic renal failure is associated with restless legs, but I think since the use of erythropoietin, it's become less common for patients in dialysis units to be severely disabled with restless legs. There's been a range of other medical conditions associated with it, but most unsubstantiated. We do know peripheral neuropathies may be associated with it and possibly Parkinson's disease. There are some medications that might be associated with restless legs. The antidepressants, with the exception of bupropion, can worsen or precipitate restless legs. Neuroleptic agents, which block dopamine, certainly can, and possibly antihistamines. But most patients, there won't be a clear etiology found. Most are primary restless legs, possibly genetic
0: The association with iron deficiency is fascinating, and um, I know we're going to get into treatment a little bit later, but if you find iron deficiency in a patient with restless leg syndrome and you correct the iron deficiency, does the restless leg syndrome go away? Well, if there
1: is full iron deficiency, your serum ferritin is below the lower limit for age and gender and your lab, and there's a clear cause for it, yes, generally it will go away. But we also have patients with low normal iron stores, which would be, say, a serum ferritin above, say, 15 or 20, but under 75. And some of those patients will get improvement with treatment, but not necessarily all.
0: Okay. Tell us about the association with periodic leg movements.
1: Yes, this is often a real cause for confusion. Periodic leg movements are involuntary, Jerking of the legs, um, the anterior tibial muscle contracts, so the foot dorsiflexes up, and sometimes the knee bends, coming at about 30 to 60 second intervals during sleep. Most often, the patients are unaware of it, and it's simply the bed partner who describes it. Periodic limb movements are found if you're going to do a sleep study, and we don't do sleep studies to diagnose restless legs. You might do one if there's also a suspicion of sleep apnea, but restless legs is a clinical diagnosis. Mm-hmm. But if we were to do do sleep studies, we'd find that about 85% of patients with restless legs will have periodical movements of sleep. However, Periodic movements of sleep are not specific. If we take a population of people that we find periodic leg movements on, only a minority of restless legs. They're very common in people over the age of 60 years, often completely asymptomatic. We see them accompanying sleep apnea, many other sleep disorders, and most often they are asymptomatic epiphenomena of other disorders or normal age-related phenomena of aging, and we don't treat them as such. So that's the best way I can try and describe
0: the relationship. And the periodic leg movements occur during sleep. Restless leg syndrome occurs while being awake. Exactly. The restless
1: legs may be before sleep onset or waking the person during the night, but the periodic leg movements are usually during sleep. Now, I have to qualify that by saying there are patients who have periodic movements of wakefulness when they're drowsy in bed or in the evening and they can feel the legs jerking. Most of those will also have other symptoms of restless legs once it's, it's apparent during wakefulness.
0: Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the pathophysiology of restless leg syndrome. Hasn't there been some work done with the neurotransmitters in the brain?
1: Yes. Well, this is a
0: a relatively
1: brief discussion because the bottom line is we don't fully understand the pathophysiology of restless legs. Clearly, there's a genetic component. We know dopamine agents help restless legs, and there's basic science research suggesting that possibly there's a reduction in certain dopamine receptors in the basal ganglia and maybe in the spinal cord. The relationship to iron is interesting. Iron is needed for certain dopamine receptors, and There's some basic science work suggesting that the defect might be a problem of transporting iron across the blood-brain barrier into the brain. There are certain animal models of restless legs that this work has been done on, but we really don't fully understand comprehensively the pathophysiology at this stage.
0: You mentioned earlier some medical conditions that can uh, Mm -hmm. present somewhat like restless leg syndrome. Mm -hmm. Are there any others that we should be uh, watching for and uh, trying to decide is it something else or is it restless leg syndrome?
1: Yes, there are a couple that we should be aware of. The first is uh, the leg jiggler. I'm a, I'm a jiggler. If you watch me under the table when I'm <laughs> sitting awake, I'm jiggling away, irritates my wife, especially when the whole table rattles a little. That is a voluntary habit. If somebody points it out to me, I stop immediately and I don't feel distressed stopping it and I don't feel an urge to move. In fact, there's some interesting work suggesting that leg jigglers actually have less, lower weight because it's what's called a non-activity energy thermogenesis where you actually are using your muscles while you're jiggling. But that's not restless legs. It's It's a habit. Somebody can stop it without causing any distress. The second thing we should just be aware of is we have patients who say, yes, I have discomfort in the legs at night and I've got to move them. And you say, well, how do you relieve it? I turn over and change position. I never get up and walk. That's not restless legs. That's positional discomfort comfort, maybe from pressure on the skin or on cutaneous nerve endings or a joint, and you just turn over and the pressure is relieved, that's not restless legs. And the third one, are the ubiquitous condition of nocturnal leg cramps. But there, the patient is telling you the diagnosis. It's different. The patient will say, I get pain in the, in the calves or foot. The muscle gets intensely hard. I jump out of bed, but I don't relieve it by walking. I relieve it by standing on my toes or massaging the muscle to get rid of it. So really, the history, if you go into a little more detail, is very different from restless legs.
0: Okay. Now, the diagnosis of restless leg syndrome is generally made with the history, and it's usually not that difficult to diagnose this. Is there anything on physical exam we should look for?
1: You know, if there are symptoms of peripheral neuropathy, in addition to restless legs, the patient says my toes are numb, I've got pins and needles in my feet, that's something a little different from that urge to move, then one should do a brief examination, check the re- ankle reflexes, check sensation in the feet for a peripheral neuropathy. But if there are no other clues to a neuropathy, the examination is probably going to be relatively unhelpful. Again, of course, if there's something to suggest a physical cause for iron deficiency, one might have to do an examination that's relevant.
0: But the exam is primarily to rule out other confusing Mm -hmm. conditions that might be thought to be restless leg syndrome. Or
1: or an underlying etiology such as peripheral neuropathy. Sure.
0: How about laboratory tests? Anything there of value? Other than Mm -hmm. checking iron for sure.
1: Well, iron is the main one that we should do. I recommend in patients with at least chronic persistent restless legs twice a week, at least that everybody gets a serum ferritin iron and a total iron binding capacity. So we can measure the percentage saturation. These tests must be done fasting. And if the person is taking iron, oral iron supplementation, including in a multivitamin, this should be stopped a few days before the test is done. There is no evidence that any other blood work is needed. Um, Obviously, chronic renal failure is associated with restless legs. But I've never picked up chronic renal failure just on the basis of restless legs. There's always some other reason there's no evidence that other electrolyte disturbances or vitamin deficiencies are associated with restless legs.
0: Okay. Well, let's talk about treatment. How do you determine which patients need treatment?
1: Well, if the patient has chronic persistent restless legs at least twice a week, causing moderate to severe distress, the patient's going to tell you they need treatment. As If it's interfering with sleep on a regular basis, they need treatment. Now there are some people who have just intermittent restless legs and they know when, when they go to a concert, when they have a long plane flight, for instance, something like that, but otherwise they're not troubled by it. They may want something to help them then, and jumping ahead a little. For those rare situations, a small dose of levodopa, carbidopa, levodopa, is often perfectly sufficient, but that drug shouldn't be used
0: long-term for these patients. Before we talk about pharmacologic therapy, is there anything non-pharmacologic that seems to help?
1: well when people have the symptoms of course we recommend movement walking riding a stationary bike sometimes massaging the leg does seem to help sometimes soaking in warm water patients will tell us it helps the other interesting thing is that sometimes mental alerting helps. You know, this is contrary to what we recommend for chronic um, psychophysiologic insomnia when the last thing we want is during the night the person to mentally alert themselves. But sometimes if they play games on a computer or keep themselves mentally alert, somehow the symptoms of the restless leg seem to get less for whatever reason. That's not a long-term solution. Moderate exercise may help. Unexpected severe exercise may actually make it worse that day. They can experiment reducing caffeine and reducing alcohol. If it works fine, if it doesn't, no big deal, they can go back to it. And one should at least look into the role of medications. Though I don't advocate everybody must stop their antidepressants, but it's worth asking the question, did the restless legs start after the antidepressants were started? And do they really need them? I mean, we're all aware there are many people out there who were put on antidepressants and they were never stopped and they really don't need them long term. When it comes to iron, if the serum ferritin is less than 50 to 75 in that range, we sometimes often recommend oral iron supplementation. And I think the important thing there is ideally it's given once every second night. If the person's going to forget, once every night's fine, but probably absorption is better every second night with a preparation that also has vitamin C and usually given before bed on a relatively empty stomach if they can tolerate it with a recheck of iron after three months. Goal is to try get it above 50 to 75. The one exception would be if the person. has chronic inflammation or malignancy, in which case the ferritin may be a phase reactant and you may have a falsely high one. So if the under those circumstances, if the percentage saturation is less than 20%, we might also consider iron supplementation.
0: Okay. Well, let's talk about medications. That's really the mainstay of treatment for restless leg syndrome. What's available?
1: sticking with iron for just a moment, there are patients with very severe restless legs who have iron malabsorption states or cannot tolerate oral iron because of GI side effects in whom we do give intravenous iron infusions. We give both low molecular weight iron dextran and ferricarboxymaltose. The condition for that is that in addition to the serum ferritin being probably under 100, we might be a little more lenient on it because over 75, oral iron is just not absorbed. But the important thing is the percentage saturation must be less than 45, because we do not want to overload the liver with iron. Those preparations get into the brain, we give usually a single infusion of each, there is a risk of anaphylactic reaction. So we want to do it in a controlled environment. I mean, that risk is low, but we want to do it in a controlled environment with resuscitation available. There's there's a little more to it, test doses for iron dextran. But I will say that it has about a 50 to 60% success rate for people with low iron stores, not necessarily absent iron stores. And some people it helps, some it doesn't. But let's leave iron and talk about medication. Mm-hmm. And the f- important point that I'd like to make today is that our first-line approach to restless legs has changed in the last few years. Instead of using the dopamine agonists like Premipixel, we now recommend as first-line therapy the gabapentinoids. They offer two-delta ligands, gabapentin, or it's prodrug gabapentin in a carb or pregabalin. And the reason we've changed is because of two things that happened with these dopamine agonists, Pramipixel, Ropenerol, and the rotigotine patch. The first is this strange phenomenon called augmentation, which is confined to the dopamine agonists for restless legs. And what happens is we give Pramipixel before bed. Usually it should be given two hours before symptoms start. And it's wonderful, miraculous result. And then a few months or a year later, the patient comes back and says, You know, doctor, now I'm getting it when I sit down in the evening. So you say, Give a little more at 5 p.m. Oh, that's fantastic. Then a few months pass, and now it's Coming at three o'clock in the afternoon. And before long, you're giving more and more and more early and early and early in the day. And the more you give, the worse the symptoms get. And then it stops working at night and sometimes spreads up to the arms. That happens in 40 to 70% of people on these dopamine agonists. And when it gets really entrenched, this augmentation can be extremely hard to manage. The second thing is a small percentage of patients under 10% get impulse control disorders, dreadful urges to gamble, to shop excessively, or to search the internet for sex. And That goes away if you stop the drug, but it's very distressing and some people lose money because they don't remember, we've told them it's related to the drug. So for those two reasons, we prefer to start with the gabapentinoids unless they're contraindications and they are contraindications. These drugs are not harmless even though they don't cause augmentation. Patients who have active depression, who are markedly obese, who have respiratory failure, or who have gait instability already, we're wary about using those drugs. So in those cases, we would use the dopamine agonists, if we use the gabapentinoids, they do not have to be given three times a day, like some physicians think they always have to be given that way. They can be given once or necessary twice a day, often just an hour before bed. The average dose of pregabalin, we build up to it, is about 300 milligrams. Gabapentin, 900 to 1200 milligrams. Obviously in older people and people with renal impairment, we start lower and give lower doses too. If it doesn't work and they don't work in all patients, or if they have side effects, then we go to the dopamine agonists. And the most important thing about the dopamine agonists to prevent this augmentation or reduce the risk is keep the total dose low. And the maximum dose we want ever to give in most people for Pramipixel is a total daily dose of 0.5 milligrams and Ropenerol probably 2 milligrams, way below the doses used for Parkinson's disease. That doesn't totally remove the risk of augmentation, but does reduce it.
0: If we put the issue of augmentation aside, are the medications such as uh, gabapentin or pregabalin as effective as the dopamine agonists?
1: Yes, they probably are. There's one excellent control trial, only one multi-center comparing them. You know, it's so hard to get controlled trials comparing different drugs as opposed to placebo. But there's one excellent multi-center study which suggested that 300 milligrams of pregabalin was as effective as 0.5 milligrams premipexel. But not everybody responds. There are patients who say, I've done it and it didn't work. In general, Both classes of drugs, the dopamine agonists and the gabapentinoids, if you look at follow-up studies, about 70% of patients remain on them, but 30% don't, either it's not working enough or they've got side effects.
0: Okay. And does restless leg syndrome ever resolve on its own or is pharmacologic therapy pretty Uh much needed for the rest of their life? Well,
1: it varies. There are studies and personal, you know, anecdotal experience that some people go into remission for unexplained reasons. So it is not necessarily there the rest of one's life. But most people, when it's ingrained, chronic, persistent, it will probably stay. Now, obviously, if they have secondary causes, such as iron deficiency, and we correct it, that would be a different story. But for idiopathic, restless legs, some patients might go into remission. And they're patients who ask after a couple of years, can we try come off medications? And yes, you can slowly try to take them off and see what happens. But certainly, the majority of patients I see, and I am biased because, of course, I see the worst, most severe cases, it's pretty lifelong. There are patients, of course, who are really refractory and don't respond to either of these classes of medications or to iron and without going into a lot of detail those patients often do very nicely with low doses of opioids and if a specialist is recommending low dose opioid therapy i would ask that this be considered seriously and worries about opioid therapy should not prevent physicians from prescribing it when necessary and i would tell you the average dose That that these refractory patients needs is equivalent to 20 milligrams oxycodone daily, which would be 30 milligrams morphine milligram equivalent. If one's familiar with that, which is way below the doses used for chronic pain that has led people into trouble. Mm
0: -hmm. So for those refractory patients being treated with opioids, do you see a tolerance developing? So their Uh dose tends to escalate Uh with time?
1: Generally not. We now have a national opioid registry for restless legs, 500 patients have now been followed for two years. And of course, I have patients who've been on there much longer than that. In general, it's stable. That's not every patient, but the vast majority, we run somewhere in terms of oxycodone between 10 and 30 milligrams. That's not to say I don't have a few patients who need to go a little higher, but when you're on the stable dose, most often it remains stable and they don't develop tolerance. But one's gotta be careful, see them back at regular intervals and do all the usual precautions of opioid use. For patients who, some who just don't respond to oxycodone, hydrocodone, morphine, Methadone is extremely effective for restless legs, but probably should be in the hands of a specialist who has experience with it because it's a difficult drug to use.
0: Sure. And just one more question on treatment. Do you ever use combination therapy?
1: Yes. For refractory patients, sometimes we will use combinations of opioids, not opioids generally, but of gabapentinoids and dopamine agonists. They don't interact and sometimes lower doses of both can be helpful. For patients who have developed augmentation, and regrettably I still see patients who come to me on two or three milligrams of premipexil, remember that we now think that maximum dose should be 0.5 milligrams, it can be extremely troublesome trying to get them off that drug. It's almost as if it's dependence-producing at that level it, with you know, dopamine withdrawal effects, and that probably should be in the hands of someone with experience in managing this sort of severe augmentation.
0: Okay. Well, Mike, you've given us a very thorough review of restless leg syndrome. Can you... Uh maybe summarize our discussion by giving two or three key points?
1: Yes, certainly. First, this is a common and sometimes extremely disabling condition affecting quality of life, people sleeping two hours a night. Second, always think about iron, causes of iron deficiency and check iron and replace as needed. Third, the first line treatment now, the gabapentinoids, unless they are contraindications. However, dopamine agonists can be used if they are contraindications or the gabapentinoids don't work or produce side effects. If you're using the dopamine agonists, be aware of augmentation and impulse control disorders. Check with each visit and keep the dose low, that is the most important precaution you can take. And finally, for refractory patients, opioid therapy can be highly effective and life-transforming in low doses and can be safely used in most patients.
0: We've been discussing restless leg syndrome with Dr. Michael Silber from the Department of Neurology at the Mayo Clinic. Mike, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.